never know where inspiration is going to come from for a podcast episode. I was in my dentist waiting room last month. My morning had been a bit hectic and I was just enjoying a quiet moment before being called back from my dental cleaning when my eye caught the glimpse of a precariously stacked set of three filled biscuits on the cover of a very interesting looking printed publication. When I picked up the magazine to flip through it, I was immediately struck by the unique feel of the pages. They had a matte finish, and it felt a little bit like maybe fancy construction paper. The photography was simply stunning shots of amazing looking food. This was my first exposure to Edible India, a local publication in Indianapolis that celebrates local food stories from around the state. The first article I read was from Jennifer Rubenstein, the editor-in-chief. It was titled, Who's Your Thoughts? She wrote, By nature, I'm a nurturer. I love to create and nurture all kinds of things, paintings, gardens, photos, and especially food. Year after year, I've thrown myself naturally into conversations where I invite people to tell me a story about themselves, something meaningful, something to which they can relate. She goes on to write, Winter is a time for reflecting, a time to cherish those moments from one year going into the next, a time to focus on the now. Over the next few months, you'll see Edible Indy become more of a creator of some significant changes. In 2019, we want to dive deep into stories of our community, addressing what the future of food looks like and how we can make an impact in our community. She signs the article with Hoosier Hugs, Jennifer Rubenstein. We'll meet the hopeful Hoosier behind the homey elegance of Edible Indie Magazine, Jennifer Rubenstein, on the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, Episode 7. I'm Andy Dix. Jennifer, we're at a quaint place. Tell me about where we're meeting today because this is a great location. So we're at the Lemon Bar in Zionsville, downtown, and the owners are actually the same owners that own the Flying Cupcake, uh, the famous cupcakes of the city of Indianapolis. I just love this place. It's just so happy. It makes me happy when you walk in here. It's so romantic and just old and frilly, and but new and trendy. And the food is pretty amazing, too. What's the real reason behind why you feel the market needs Edible Indy? We tend to really be a very positive, driven publication who tries to make a difference. And the way that we do that is by telling stories of stories that aren't told. Because everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. Everybody's connected somehow to the land, to the food, to the sustainability. And I truly believe by being more positive and, and having hope that there is a chance for something good, that we can drive a change in your mindset. When someone is a subscriber or regular reader of Edible Indie, what do you hope they come away with? Something that they don't know. Something that they don't know, something that they can do in their daily life or that they can support in order to make a true um, difference. Maybe it's in the economy, maybe it's in somebody's life. You, you know, it's, it's very interesting that when you're talking about being hyper-local, no matter what it is, no matter what business it is, when you buy a dinner at the Lemon Bar, it's physically going into the owner's college education for their children versus into the salary paid for the marketing person or, uh, you know, the secretary. Not that those positions are, are not important, but I truly feel like it makes a difference in a way that large corporations can't quite understand. 
So let's take a look inside Edible Indie. This is the table of contents from the winter 2018 edition. It's broken out in departments. Who's your thoughts? Celebrating food? Eat. Nation. Home. Farm. Culture. Tidbits. And last bite. There's a lot of feature articles that are really terrific. For example, a chef's journey, a glimpse inside a local chef's creative process, or rooted in love, Jonah Tobbs and Teeter's Organic Farm's commitment to feeding the mind, body, and spirit. I like this one. A hug on the inside, making biscuits six ways with chef Nick Simpson. There's also terrific recipes, but of course, it's a feast for the eyes as well when you see the amazing photography capturing some delicious looking food. Next, I asked Jennifer if she would share one of her most memorable interviews for Edible Indie. It's actually in our, our spring issue of this last year, now that we're in 2019. His name is Donald Cote. It came through, a friend of a friend mentioned, oh, you know, I know this gentleman. He worked at Eli Lilly. He is a Taekwondo teacher, and he's this gentleman who's in his 60s, who's African-American. And he has this really cool story, and I'm like, okay, what what might that be? And we, as we dove into it, and we we recognized what the story was, we really fell in love with it. And so, Donald's great grandfather was the first freed slave in the state of Indiana who became a landowner, and he still has this piece of property. And Donald actually uses this. It's in Washington County, and he goes down there. He has a small farm. He's got a couple of cows, he has a garden, he has a house that he's redone, but it's the same property. And to me, those are stories that, first of all, they're gold, um, but second of all, they're truly a, a difference, they're multi-generational difference that it made from going from a slave to free to showcasing that it was important enough for this gentleman to keep this piece of property because he's using it for his own purposes. And he may not think of it the same way as what we think of it, but I think it's this amazing, beautiful story of love, of dedication, of the freedom, of what the United States has become and what the United States was. When someone's reading Edible Indie, they're experiencing a print publication in a digital age. Why did you choose to go print as opposed to just being all digital? Well, one is, is we're supposed to be print. Um, there's actually 80 of us in the United States and Canada, so we're a group of communities that get together to do this hyper-local piece. But part of it is that we look at ourselves as almost a coffee table book. We're something that people don't throw away. People like to pick it up because it's a piece of art. People look at it and they're like, wow, the aesthetics. The first thing that draws you in is how gorgeous the photos are. So we make it really feel good. The second thing is, is they pick it up and they, there's, there's a, a touch. There's, it's an organic, it's raw. So we like to tap into those senses. Um, and then you start reading through and you start flipping through and you're like, okay, your mind shuts off. And my managing editor, Colleen, she says it the best, every time that we go to put the magazine together, she says, I want it to be a hug from the inside out. I want somebody to sit down and I want it to flow and I want it to be this beautiful story that you can read from front to back, but it's all integrated, it's all woven and you walk away and you feel like you literally have been hugged and that you have a sense of meditation, a sense of calm, a sense of, of renew, a sense of walking away with a purpose. And that's why I think it needs to be print. 
And believe me when I say our readers tend to be 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, up to 90s. They love it because they don't have access to the print that they should. It's, it's new and it's experience for them. But there's purpose behind what you're doing. Tell me about what you've experienced as people are becoming more and more urbanized, suburbanized, and we're losing touch with our agricultural roots here in the state of Indiana. You know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I always say, especially when I'm speaking to parents or I'm speaking to, to classrooms about what the importance of this is, is I've had kids who don't think chicken nuggets come from chickens. They're like, no, they're just chicken nuggets. And when I say kids, sometimes they're high schoolers. It does frighten me. I'll give you a little bit of background about what I'm going to tell you and then, and then to answer your question is, I came from Northern Indiana. My mother's maiden name is Yoder. My grandfather was Amish turned Mennonite. I did not grow up Mennonite, but we had that in our background. And now I'm married to a Jewish man. So there's all this really amazing culture and traditions and food that is brought into whatever it is in your life. And so one of the things that I was brought up on is we always had a garden. My father hunted. We were not wealthy people, so we literally had to live off of the land. But it was interesting because growing up that way and then realizing that the focus of food was actually to live, we went away from that for a long time when we came into the Orida microwave french fries and the TV dinners and, and, and the convenience because people were too busy. Where I think that what we're doing is we're, we're, we're walking back into that now. We're walking back into that. Um, and, and I think that it's because people are realizing that the land is in jeopardy, that our health is in jeopardy, that diseases and all of these things that are really quite frightening for us as our generation and our children's generation that can be effectively changed by going back and creating sustainable, clean methods and models. And so teaching our future about where things come from, how to grow your own food in an urban environment, not just a rural environment, is, is so important. But giving them the tips and the tricks, somebody has to do it. And so we see it building more in the community schools, we see it more in educational projects. And so that's where, you know, that's what we really find is important with walking away and trying to teach this through, through our publication. And not just that, like, I'm, we're really walking the talk. I have, um, I have five red raised beds at my house. I have two young children, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. We, two years ago, decided to get chickens because I wanted the kids to understand where our eggs came from, how it was to actually have chickens, um, the joy of being able to feed them and to see how our waste, our compost goes back to them, that there's a cycle. And now we're building on our, our three acres that we have in Indianapolis, we're building you know, some orchards, we're building, we're planting more fruit trees, we're planting raspberry bushes and blueberry bushes, um, we're trying fig trees. You know, we're trying these things, which my husband is from Indianapolis and never thought he would have um, a dog, let alone chickens and this little, like, farm. But you see more and more of that happening because we're trying to be more responsible for the future of our children. What do you want them to take away from that? Hopefully I give them as a legacy is the education of being able to survive no matter what. Being able to teach them that if the Great Depression happens again, if something terrible happens where 
you don't know necessarily where you're going to get your food, that you can make your own food. You can survive off of your land. You can be completely sustainable. You know, I always tell my, my daughter, I say, you know, blueberries weren't something that we had at the holidays because they were only a summer food. We've never, you know, we never had avocados. I never had an avocado until I was an adult. Um, it just wasn't something that we had. But I think, you know, being able to train them and to teach them and to have them physically be in it with me, not just, you don't speak at people. You engage people. You teach them. You give them hands-on opportunities to be able to learn it. And it brightens their mind. It gives them more compassion. It gives them an idea of what it takes of hard work. Um, I think it gives them some sort of an, you know, an ethics. Um, I think that that's something that we have to also teach is this work ethic. What it takes and the hard work, it's not just handed to you. That an apple isn't just handed to you in a store. Where does that actually come from? And how does it affect people completely in the circle of life? When our conversation with Jennifer Rubenstein of Edible Indie Magazine continues, we'll find out how local sourcing is impacting restaurants and our local Indianapolis culture here on the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, Episode 7. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast is made possible in part by AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis executive coaching firm accelerating success for executives and entrepreneurs. Visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Storytelling is becoming a lost art, and so is the ability to choose a topic to talk about. Walk the Talk Speaker Series presents stories told by passionate speakers on topics that are timely yet timeless. For more information and to see our videos and hear our podcasts, please visit www.walkthetalkseries.com. Our mission is to create an epic shift in how people think. My name is Harrison Painter. And I'm Josh Bach. And we are co-founders of Amplify Indie. We have a monthly event called the Amplify Indie Monthly Experience. And we want to invite each and every one of you out to our event. This is where we celebrate community, culture, and commerce. We bring all of us together for an event once a month. At the Amplify Indie Monthly Experience, we showcase a local artist, local musician, a local nonprofit, and we bring in a keynote speaker. You can find out more about our monthly event by going to AmplifyIndie.com. In the event section or Eventbrite, uh, just search for the Amplify Indie Monthly Experience. Once again, my name is Harrison Painter. And I am Josh Bach. And we hope to see you there. Amplify Indie citizens, unite. Are you a leader who's frustrated with trying to bring out the best in your people every day? Would you like to know the secret to motivating people so that they actually want to do what you're asking them to do? Hi, I'm Andy Dix, and I am president and a board-certified executive coach at AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis executive coaching firm. I help new and emerging leaders accelerate their professional development and growth so that they can bring out the best consistent performance from everyone they lead. If you'd like to talk about what matters most to you, give me a call at 317-538-3231. Once again, 317-538-3231. Or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Let's have a conversation about motivation. It's why we do what we do. Welcome back to the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, Episode 7. I'm Andy Dix. 
We're in Zionsville, Indiana, at the Lemon Bar, having a wonderful conversation with the editor-in-chief of Edible Indie Magazine, Jennifer Rubenstein. The Lemon Bar is one of several local restaurants who are really focusing on local sourcing of their produce and other products. Jennifer Rubenstein tells us more about this farm-to-table or local sourcing trend. And I'm grabbing, I know they can't see us, but I'm grabbing the lemon bar menu um, as we speak because as we're here, this is part of the reason why I wanted to meet here too, is that as we flip to the back of their menu, it says our local partners. And it has a list of all of the local artisans that they use from whether it be bourbon, which, you know, we're, we have a history of bourbon in the state of Indiana, um, down to the bacon that they use from Goose the Market to local bread. When you go into a grocery store and you buy a package of meat, you have literally no idea where that's coming from. You have no idea how it's treated. You have no idea what they're fed. But when you buy farm-to-table products, you do. And these people have stories. And they're, again, it's a labor of love for them. Uh, I don't think any of these artisans are doing it because they're making millions and millions of dollars. There are, of course, wonderful stories out there like Upland Brewing Company or Trader's Point Yogurt that have just blown up. But it's interesting on that level that Trader's Point, let's take Trader's Point Creamery, for example, they went national. They were everywhere. They were in Whole Foods. And they made a conscientious effort this last year to come back to their roots and say, you know what, we're downsizing. We're pulling back. We want this to be a quality product. We want it to be a good cost. And we need to have it pulled back because it is important for the state of Indiana or the Midwest to really savor this and to be able to support us more instead of just being a big box store commodity. So. You know, I think this farm-to-table movement, it is, it's important. It's, when we started six years ago, we had a list of probably 10 restaurants that deemed themselves as farm-to-table in Indianapolis. Many of those restaurants now, they're like, we don't use that term. The, the term farm-to-table is a very marketed word now because it doesn't really mean farm-to-table anymore. Everybody's farm-to-table. But them sharing with the consumer who their partners are gives them the story, gives them an idea of where this food is coming from. It's You're more knowledgeable about it, and you have to be. These days, we, these we have to be knowledgeable about where our food comes from to protect ourselves and our health. How does having a vibrant artisan farm community supported by a local restaurant or local grocery uh, outlet enrich the experience of living in Indiana? The Midwest is known for its farming community. You know, we are a corn state. We're never going to get away from that. We are a soybean state, but we're also a pork state. We're the number one pork producer, you know, and we produce beautiful pieces of pork. With those examples, it's benefiting the economy. And not only is it benefiting the economy, but Visit Indiana, they produced a huge amount of content in regards to agritourism, which have allowed people to come into this market in order to be able to visit these places. Or like a Trader's Point, they were able to get the word out about this Indiana product across the United States, and we can tell that. We can say we're a state that is taking the time, that is taking the initiative, that's taking the effort. You know, John Brooks of Milk Tooth and Beholder, 
he has made such a leadership role in being able to allow people to understand where your food comes from is an important, how you've prepared it. But he's also given us a great PR reason for people to come here and to visit the state, um, which all leads back to the growth of our economy, the growth of these artisans. That's what it's really about. But it's also about looking at the more of these artisans, the more of these growers and producers, it's just giving back into the land. It's making our land more rich as well. So there is that environmental ability to be able to produce better air quality, better sustainability, better recycling methods, better composting. Um, you know, IU has a beautiful sustainability program um, on their campus that they're teaching. Um, Purdue has, you know, classes that they're teaching on organics, and it's all because these things are homegrown right here. If I'm a consumer, and what you're saying is intriguing to me, and maybe I've read an article in Edible India about it, how do I find out more about where these products are available and how I can purchase them? So it's funny because we talk about print, that we're a print piece, but that's where I guess our digital aspect comes in is research. I mean, we are in the age of everything that you possibly need is right in front of you. It's at a touch of a button. You have to research. You can go to edibleindy.com. You can call us. You can look on the website and type in that person's and Google's that person's product, and you're going to be able to find that information. There are a lot of resources. The Indiana Grown uh, membership program that the state of Indiana has put together, they have a huge list of who 900, they may be up to a thousand members that are local Indiana growers and producers, where they're available, what their story is, where their website is. I mean, everybody has a website, a Facebook and Instagram page now. You can find those pieces pretty much anywhere. And our social media, we do that. We try really hard to tap into and share our artisan stories. If we can't do it through the pages of our publication, we try really hard to say, hey, we've got this great new honey that came out of Eagle Creek Apiary, and here it is, and here's the information, and here's where you need to find it out. And I think more and more people are doing that. There's a lot of influence net networks who they believe in this. So, I mean, if you just look, you ask, you use your voice, you use your knowledge, you're going to be able to find it. It's, it's really at the click of our, our fingers. In the summertime, there's a lot of farmer's markets around, and people are familiar with that concept, right, where, where you can get great local produce and, and other products as well. In the wintertime, it's a little more challenging. What do you think are some of the secret harvests that exist here in the state in the wintertime for us in early spring. So there's more winter markets um, actually popping up because again, when we started, there was a handful of farmers market and we do a farmers market guide in every one of our summer issues. We feature about a hundred farms and farmers markets where you can go and you can get local produce and you can get local cheeses and honeys and unique products like bison or elk and those type of things. And we see these winter markets are becoming a bigger piece because people are understanding how to harvest. They're understanding how to preserve. People are growing indoors. There's more agriculture that is greenhouse or hothouse or indoor growing facilities. We're using storage containers and we're using grow walls. We're using mushrooms. We have mushroom farmers here and that can be grown year round. So even though we're still seasonal, you see a shift. You see a shift when you go to these farmer's markets. You're not going to find tomatoes. You're not going to find peppers, but you might find Brussels sprouts. You're going to find kimchi. You're going to find breads and honeys and jams and things that are, again, they're seasonal. That's what's here. 
you're going to find squash, things that can be grown in this time. So there is a shift, but again, it's the key to figuring out what grows in what season. That's what we're about is what's going to grow in the spring may grow in the fall. What grows in the summer doesn't grow in the, in the winter unless you have some sort of an indoor facility. Lettuce grows all year round. Herbs can grow all year round. So many people are so pressed for time these days. A busy mom who's running to the mega supermarket just trying to get through as quickly and as inexpensively as possible. Why would they want to take the time to go to this extra extent to find this, this locally artisan produced edible products? Well, I think people's sense of time is very different on what is important. And if you make it an important part of your life to feed your family or yourself or your body with really good, nutrient-rich ingredients, then you're going to do this. I think a lot of people think running through and grabbing a pan of lasagna at the grocery store and popping it in the oven is the fast way. I mean, today we have Instapot. We have challenges with time. We have to figure out what that challenge is. Like on Sundays, I sit with my family and we make a, a menu out and then I'll spend two or three hours in the kitchen preparing my meals for the week, whether we use an Instapot, whether we use a Crock-Pot, or we just plan things out. If you take the time to plan, it can be done without the use of going out for dinner or putting in this pan of lasagna or, you know, a hungry man uh, into your belly. I think the real challenge isn't the food. It's the mindset of figuring out and giving yourself the time to plan because I'm as busy as anybody and I make it a priority. It's a priority for my family to eat a good meal together that's warm, that is curated and tastes good and going back to your earlier question, that's teaching my kids the value of what that does to a family. Paint me a picture of what the future would be like if the family farm goes away and it's only the corporate farm in Indiana and we don't have these artisans anymore because we just didn't support them because they were a little more expensive and a little bit harder to find. What's the future like? I mean, this is just my opinion. I have no background in this other than just reading. I think the reality is is that we'll die sooner. We'll be a more obese, disease-ridden community. We'll have less activity. We'll have less productivity because everything, you know, from your top to your bottom of your feet is connected somehow with whether it be the environment or the food. And so the more sugar that you feed your body, the more your midsection's going to grow, the more you're going to have brain fog. I truly believe many of the things that are waning on our children, ourselves, come from the things that we've put in our body. So I think if we just go away and we go into this role where McDonald's and pop and sugar and gluten products that aren't good for you, white bread, it's, they're just filler foods. They're filler foods that aren't going to give us a good idea. And I think one of the, the really important things is, is your brain. You're feeding your brain. How many times have, when I was a child, when you were a child, our mother said, you have to get sleep and you have to eat food because if you don't get a breakfast, it doesn't feed your mind. And it's very true. There's so many scientific evidence out there that talk about that kids who go to school hungry are less productive. And it's the same with us as an adult. Uh, Ariana Huffington, I, I listened to a podcast with her talk about how you know they have good food and then they have these sleeping pods 
because if they give them 20 minutes after they eat a nutritious meal to rest themselves, they're 69 minutes more productive than if they didn't. We, we need these things as a lifestyle because we've just, we're going to burn out. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to start this publication and some of the challenges that, that you had to overcome to get it up and going. So my husband always uses the line whenever people ask this question of why, why did you start this? And my husband says, we built a zoo. If you've ever seen the movie, he fell in, Matt Damon falls into this property that is a zoo and he's all of a sudden responsible for these animals and for these people and he, he he figures it out. I was in corporate for a very long time and I was burnt out. I, I had nothing to leave as a legacy. I had nothing to hang my hat on. They always say when you die you never wish you worked more. So I said okay what is it that I want to do and it probably was a midlife crisis too. And this happened to fall into my lap, which I find that there's divine intervention sometimes. It fell into my lap. Growing up, I was a foodie. You know, what was fun for us on Sundays was literally getting in the car and driving without our GPS, without a map, without a cell phone, without any knowledge of where we would go to see what we could find off the beaten paths. And oftentimes we'd find ice cream, we'd find a roadside stand, we'd find gladiolas that were being sold out of a bucket, whatever it might be. And that was always intriguing to me and so I felt like we could do that and we could bring that into the community with this publication. With that being said, we came into it at a great time because the farm to table movement was just really rolling out. But we also fought against certain things. We went to Fair Oaks Farm the first year and I did social media with my children. I told factual statements and we were bombarded with very hateful comments and mail from the humane groups about pharaohs and about how hideous this place was. And this isn't what we saw. What we saw was that this is the milk that you buy at Kroger, you know, that this is, they buy, they make cheese, they, that there is a process that maybe they just didn't understand. And so we found that there are some very extremists out there who didn't like what we were doing. So at that point in time, we decided that it was going to be our mission to really try to be positive and to really educate. But I also realized after that that I had to let those things play out because they, they have a voice too. So the challenge for me was to be neutral. And that can be very tough. I'm a redhead. I'm very opinionated. And so this, this magazine has lended itself to teach me to be more tolerant, to be more neutral, to understand both sides. But there's always challenges. There's people who don't agree with us. There's people who disagree. And then there's the challenge of how do you make money off of it? It's print. We have people who tell us we're not doing advertising in print. We're never going to get rich off of this publication. And the obstacle of knowing and understanding what we have to do in order to keep building, that's a challenge. So we have to review every year, what are the new things that we are challenged with? What's the new social media guide? What's the new algorithm that we have to play with? And what are these new artisans who are coming that are the millennials who are tapped into this digital age? How do we reach them? And so there's, there's challenges from all aspects. And then we also have the political challenge 
Um, you know, we have we have a current administration in the White House who doesn't play well with what our publication represents, which is the clean food bill and the aspects of of giving our children better food in schools. So how do we tell that story without sounding as if we have a grudge or a chip on our shoulder and educating and making sure that we tell that story in a manner where we give them the opportunity as well. And I don't always want to give them the opportunity. That's, it's, you know, you don't always want to give the person you don't agree with the opportunity to be able to share their opinion. That's probably the biggest challenge. What do you find most energizing or satisfying about what you're doing? I love being a humble person, but I love it when people reach out. And about once a quarter, I will get a random handwritten note from somebody that I don't know that tells me that something touched them in the publication. I will get a phone call from an older person who says, I want you to know that your recipe turned out wonderful. Those things keep me going. Or when I sit down with an advertiser and they say, this is amazing. Like what you're doing, keep it up. Because there are days when I want to quit. So what excites you most about the future you're creating? You know, everything is cyclical. And, you know, we're going back to the age where people are farming, they're gardening, they're slowing down. And so what has been so important to me all of my life is now actually coming back to a reality where that's really the future is buying local, um, producing local, being sustainable, and being able to see where and how that affects everything literally from the ground up. What happens if you fail? So it's interesting that you say that. Something that I recently, very recently, in the last few weeks have said is, I have accepted my failings. I will always fail. But it's how I move forward from that, what I learned from that. There's a quote from T.S. Eliot that he says, you must pass fail to succeed. And I have always said that in my life. I have failed many times. I fail my kids, I fail myself. I do a word of the year. My word of the year this year is compassion. I must be compassionate for others, but I have to be compassionate for myself. So I have to understand that as long as I put forth my best self, if I fail, I can walk away knowing I tried my hardest. So what role does hope play in your leadership and in your vision for the future? I think that without hope, there is nothing. You have to hang on to hope. You have to hang on to faith. You have to believe in something. Because if you don't, then where are you? If a listener stayed with us through our conversation <laughs> this long, what challenge would you issue to them if they've got a problem that they see that the community could be so much better if someone would just do something? What do you say to somebody like that? Be that someone. Don't hope someone else does it. That someone else isn't going to do it. You can't wait for someone else to make a difference, to make a change. All it takes is one person. So do it. Go out and do it. Don't be scared. There's a lot of fear. But once you get past that hurdle, it just will fill your heart with such joy that you can make a difference. And you start small. I always say start small. Plant a tomato plant on your deck. Go and work at the soup kitchen. Go donate your time to Second Helpings. Go teach a classroom about how to make homemade granola. Go take a beekeeping class. I mean, there's so many things that are out there 
You can't live your life thinking something's going to come to you. You have to make it happen yourself. What's the most important point someone should take away from our conversation today? Be the change. Make the difference. We make our own destination, but we also have to start being more local focused and knowing where, what, how our food is affecting us from our land, to our bodies, to our minds, to the world, to our economy. Just get a little knowledge inside of you. Feed your soul, feed your head. Um, the more knowledge that you have, the more you'll change. Where could somebody find out more and find a copy of Edible Indie? Go to edibleindie.com. We have a beautiful distribution map on there. We also are a free publication, so we, we distributed about 45 different places in central Indiana. Most of them are our advertisers, um, such as Market District. Market District is our largest distributor, so you'll find them there. But they do go fast, and so we also say if you always want to make sure that you have a copy, buy a home delivery service. It's $32 for four issues and it will be mailed to you. You won't miss out on it, but you can also find it on our website digitally. I think we're 31 publications in, so you can go back and you can find the very first one back six years ago, seven years ago, but you can also find on our website, we do weekly stories. So we have so many stories about food, about recipes, about where to shop, about food for thought, um, events, we have beautiful videos that we bring to light, and you can go on edibleindy.com and find all of that, and then you can also find publications elsewhere. So anywhere you can pick it up, please pick it up, but just know there's a lot of copies, and they go, they're pretty much out within about a month of us distributing them, and they last about three. If somebody would like to advertise with you, who do they need to contact? Jennifer at edibleindy.com. <laughs> Email me directly, we'll get you taken care of. We love to be creative. Tell us what your goal is, and we're going to come up. We don't just, we don't just talk print. We love to do events, we love to do partnerships. We, we talk about our partnership program. We don't just use advertising. We like a partnership program because we want to be successful for you. We want you to be successful for us. It's again that relationship building. So we want to customize something specifically for you within your budget. We've all heard the term food for thought, but do we really give enough thought to our food? A hyper-local publication like Edible Indie adds flavor to our unique Indiana culture. Most of us live less than 20 minutes from farm country, yet unfortunately, many of us are losing touch with how what we eat and where it comes from has a dramatic impact not only on our health, but on our environment and future as well. That's where a publication like Edible Indie plays a key role in helping us to create a better and brighter future for us here in the heartland. All it takes is a hopeful Hoosier like Jennifer Rubenstein to go against the media trends and battle the odds in passionate pursuit of her ideals and dreams. She's living the life she's imagined. Are you? What's your first step towards making a positive difference? With just a few steps, you too can be a hopeful Hoosier. Special thanks to our guest Jennifer Rubenstein and the Lemon Bar in Zionsville for allowing us to record this episode there. Our theme music was composed and performed by musician, speaker, author, and therapist, Indianapolis's own George Middleton. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and post a comment wherever you download your podcast. It helps us to share our hopeful message with others. Thank you for listening to Episode 7. 
I'm your hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.